Psalm 14. Well, it's great once again to be able to open God's Word with you. Uh, you can see that I'm recording today from Trinity Church Adelaide in North Terrace, uh, which is a great reminder for us that we're part of a network of churches here at Holy Trinity, uh, committed to trying to reach our whole city with the good news about Jesus. Uh, I hope you've had a chance to download the outline for today's talk. Uh, it should have been emailed to you during the week, uh, and you should be able to find it on the chat as well. It includes both a reasonably detailed place to take notes and some blanks to fill in, uh, as well as the Bible passage itself, Psalm 14. Um, as we get started, let me just also tell you I've got show and tell for today, so that'll be something to look forward to towards the end of the talk. Well, if you look at your handout, you'll see the question with which I want to begin today's time. How would seeing God here today change the way that you live? How would seeing God here today change the way that you live? What would you stop doing? What would you start doing? Well, if you look at the outline, you'll see the way in which I want to try and uh, cover Psalm 14. Firstly, what it tells us about God. Secondly, how it points us towards Jesus. And then thirdly, what it asks of us today. Firstly, what Psalm 14 says about God. Well, like its previous psalm, like its predecessor, Psalm 13, uh, Psalm 14 actually has very few details about David's situation. Uh, it does feel less of a particular life and death crisis that we saw in Psalm 13 and more of a general reflection on the state of the world, on humanity, on society as a whole. I suppose the difference in feel between Psalm 14 and 13 is that Psalm 13 feels more like a news report of a particular incident, whereas Psalm 14 feels more like an op-ed piece offering a commentary on the times in which we live. But like Psalm 13, it's another song in two parts. In verses one through four, we see the problem and then verses five through seven, the solution. Well, let's start with the problem then in verses one through four. Uh, David pulls no punches in describing the problem. Look with me at verse one. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, a couple of things to notice about this phrase. Um, the fool says in his heart, uh, the, the phrase in his heart is less quietly to himself and more a description of his resolve. That is, this is how he lives. And the phrase, there is no God, need not be the outraged cry of a dyed-in-the-wool atheist. It could be much less extreme. It could be someone saying, even if there is a God, he can't tell me how to live. That is, it's a denial of accountability. Now, because what we think about God inevitably affects how we treat others made by him, David continues in verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. What David is doing is reminding us that the vertical always shapes the horizontal. The vertical always shapes the horizontal. How you think about God always affects the way in which you treat other people. According to Psalm 14 verse 1, if you think there is no external judge, then life 
Well, life can be lived however you want. Or to put that slightly more cynically, life is just about trying to get away with as much as you can. The problem, of course, is that if everyone lives like that, then what we inevitably end up with is widespread rampant corruption. Verse 1, they are corrupt, their deeds are vile. We end up with a cancer that destroys a society from within. Now let me acknowledge, of course, that uh, that's, that kind of corruption, that's largely unfamiliar to us here in Australia. We are so fortunate to live in a liberal democracy with the rule of law and free and fair elections. Uh, my kids sometimes say to me, why do you have to vote again? It feels like you only just voted the other day. And to which my response is, well, actually, voting is a great privilege. We live in a country that, where if we don't like our leaders, we can vote them off the island every few years. Some of us who are watching this service today, some of us from overseas, know just how tragic and terrible the alternative is. You might be an international student. You might be a refugee. For me, this is very personal. My father's family fled communist China as refugees after World War II, seeking chance, seeking life in a country that was not quite so corrupt. Well, to stop us from glossing over David's devastating social critique, verses two and three go on to say there are no exceptions to what he's just proposed. Pick it up in verse two. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Well, here is Psalm 14's searing indictment against the entire human race. In fact, it's a brutal commentary on the human condition. This is what theologians call, and I printed there on your handout, this is what theologians call the doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of original sin. This says that all of us are born into sin. All of us are born broken and corrupted in some way. Uh, the way I try and describe this to the students who I work with on campus at ES uh, is that I say to them that, um, well, much as I hate to admit it, in the end, the doctrine of original sin says that the only thing stopping me from becoming a megalomaniac dictator is opportunity. If I had the chance, that's what I would become. Well, let me pause and ask, what do you think? What do you think? Has David overreached in his diagnosis? Or would you say that's very harsh, but fair? Well, my reflection with half the year gone by is that I think 2020 confirms that David could be describing Australian society at this point. So as I think back over the year that we've had, we began the year with some of the most wonderful acts of kindness. Now, I know this feels like a lifetime ago, but do you recall that extraordinary outpouring of generosity around the bushfires back in January? 
We've seen that, and I don't need to remind you that in the last few months, we've seen the very worst of humanity. Now, of course, we've seen the insane panic buying of ridiculous things. We've seen the blatant rule flouting, usually by celebrities who say, this doesn't apply to me. But we've seen appalling racism. Appalling racism. I was talking uh, right back at the start of the outbreak uh, with someone from the church that I attend. Uh, she's an ED doctor, an emergency department doctor, um, who is Asian. And right at the start of the pandemic, uh, someone came into, into the hospital to get checked out. And when she was the attending um, doctor, the first question the client asked her was, where are you from? When she said, I'm from Singapore, the client asked if she could see another doctor instead. Now, part of this raises the question, of course, is there any good in us? Is there any good in us at all, given this rather bleak picture of humanity that Psalm 14 has painted? To which I want to say, yes, of course there is. There must be good in us. We are made in the image of a very good God. But at the same time, even when we do do good, our motives are tinged with impurity. Our motives are tinged with impurity. And that leads to what theologians call, and again, I printed on your handout, a different doctrine, the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity. Now, you'll be pleased to know I'm going to leave that happy topic for another time. Well, the crucial question raised by Psalm 14, I think, is what does God think of how we live? What does God think of how we live? Come with me to verse 2. Verse 2, The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Now, this is a really striking image, I think, to have God in heaven looking down on all mankind. Uh, the image, I think, that comes to mind is that, well, humanity are like tiny little ants scurrying around, trying to do their business, whilst the God on high sees the big picture. Now, don't mishear me. Uh, David is not suggesting that the God in heaven is somehow remote or unapproachable. Uh, that view is called deism. It's a very weak form of theism. David is not suggesting that because, well, you would have noticed in verse 5 that David insists God is present in the company of the righteous. God is present in the company of the righteous. Uh, and for that reason, actually, I think, when David says no one seeks God, He's not referring to believers at that point. Rather, he's pointing out that unbelievers who insist there is no God, they will not even raise their eyes to try to find him. So it's no surprise that they never do. And that leaves then David's last grim example of how the vertical shapes the horizontal, how what we think about God affects the way in which we treat others. Verse 4, come with me. Verse 4, do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people. 
as though eating bread. They never call on the Lord. David is saying that unbelievers don't just drift towards corruption in pursuit of self-interest. Inevitably, they will turn their sights on believers. Even if we stay silent. Why? Well, because God's people are an uncomfortable and awkward reminder of the God they are trying to deny. And so, verse 4, they devour my people as though eating bread. What a powerfully evocative image of the callous oppression of God's people. To help kind of explain the metaphor, um, I think of the times when my in-laws come around and they spoil my children with the most enormous wheel of triple cream brie, you know, kind of about the size of a dinner plate. When they bring it around, I watch as my children eat it, savouring every mouthful, as if it's a little taste of liquid heaven in their mouth. By contrast, eating bread is so hasty, so inconsequential, so mundane that it's almost not worth mentioning or remembering. Psalm 14 is saying, this is how unbelievers treat God's people with reckless indifference. Well, having said all that, did you notice equally that in verse four, we had the first hint of a solution? Verse four, they, uh, they devour my people as though eating bread. David said, my people. Because even if no one else sees them and notices their plight, David does. And far more importantly, so does God. So let's come then to the solution in verses 5 through 7. Let me read it out. Verses 5 through 7. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, for God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Well, let me just acknowledge that um, because it's a little bit confusing, and I printed this there for you on your handout, who are the they in verse 5, who David is referring to? The they who are overwhelmed with dread? There's a couple of possibilities. One is it could be the evildoers from verse 4 who are tasting the horrific reality of God's judgment. That's one possibility. The other could be my people from verse 4. My people who, despite being overwhelmed with dread at the persecution they're suffering, still they cling to optimistic hope. Why? Well, verse 5, because God is present in the company of the righteous. And you see that idea in verse 6. Evildoers frustrate the plans of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. Well, either way, David is insisting that whenever God's people suffer, either in society at large or specifically because of their faith, God is present. 
He is present for the righteous poor, which I think is a way of describing believers. What's really interesting is that in the whole of Psalm 14, there are only two verbs to describe what God does. Only two verbs to describe what God does in the here and now. In verse 2, he looks down from heaven. But verse 5, he is present. So despite the full saying, there is no God, despite evildoers frustrating the plans of the poor, so it looks as if they're getting away with it, as if you know, the rich get richer, the poor get pictured, nothing ever changes. David is insisting there is hope because God is present. God has come near. This, I think, is the consolation or comfort of an infant who is having a nightmare in the middle of the night. You see, when they start crying and they call out for mum and dad, well, mum and dad don't just yell from their own bedroom, from their own bed, ah, don't worry, you'll be okay. Rather, mum and dad come running and they are present. Intriguingly, Psalm 14 makes very little mention of God holding the oppressors of his people to account. All I want to say today is that if it's foolish to mock the Lord, if it's foolish to assert there is no God, it's no wiser attacking his children. No doubt you've heard the phrase, beware the wrath of an angry father or a lioness protecting her cubs. Can I say to you, if you're watching this as someone who's not a believer, then more than anything else, we're so glad that you've been able to join us in this odd kind of format for this time. Can I say to you that what Psalm 14 says, that even if you haven't devoured God's people like bread, and almost certainly you haven't, even if you haven't done that, You've ignored God himself. There are consequences. Simply insisting he's not there or I'm not accountable to him, that does not make it so. And to be perfectly frank with you, that's a risk this church is not prepared to take. That's why it's committed to outreach even in this time of coronavirus. And yet where Psalm 14 concludes in verse 7 is with hope. Hope for God's people with a great prayer for what I call the two R's. The two R's. Now, these are the blanks here to fill in. This is not rest and recreation. This is restoration and rejoicing. Restoration and rejoicing. Verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. See, like Psalm 13, the appropriate response to God's intervention is to rejoice. Although you'll have noticed there in verse 7 that salvation for God's people is said to come out of Zion. Zion, also known as the city of David, the author of this song. Uh, it's a hint, I think, of the fact that this psalm is probably from later in David's life, 
after he'd captured Jerusalem. And that leads us then, having reflected on Psalm 14 very briefly, to how it points us to Jesus and point two. So, how does Psalm 14 point us to Jesus? Well, as always with the Psalms, in so many different and wonderful ways. Now, here are just a few. Um, in Jesus, we see that salvation is not just for Israel from Zion, it is for all peoples. Because it's Christ who sends us to the ends of the earth to make disciples of all nations. And likewise, we've seen how in Psalm 14, the vertical shapes the horizontal. Knowing we live in God's world, under God's rule, it influences every decision we make, not just to avoid corruption, that's detailed in Psalm 14, but put much more positively, to choose to love God and love our neighbour as ourself, as we see in the parable of the Good Samaritan. But the one that I particularly want to point out today is that as Christians, we see that in Christ, God is present. God is present. God has come near. He is Emmanuel. That just means God with us. And though Jesus has now ascended to the Father's right hand, he has sent his spirit to be with his people. That's why I printed there for you 1 Corinthians 3 verse 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Uh, can I say that's the reason why I think we long to meet together in person on a Sunday? So that we might rejoice together in our shared hope in Christ. Well, what Psalm 14 says about God, how it points us to Jesus, finally then, what does it ask of us today? Let me conclude with just three brief implications for us. Firstly, Psalm 14 sums up all of humanity and it says that we're fools if we ignore God and our accountability to him. That means this is the underlying crisis that is devastating our world today. Or to put it slightly differently, COVID-19 is not the root cause of the extraordinary suffering being wrought in our world in 2020. COVID-19 is just a symptom. It's a symptom of the underlying problem of a much bigger and ongoing affliction that is besetting all of humanity. Now, don't mishear me when I say that. I think we ought to do whatever it takes to treat those symptoms, to mitigate the pain caused by the pandemic. That's why it's right for us to have hope in a vaccine. But my point today is that when that vaccine is found, and it will be eventually, what we'll do is that we will go back to normal. We'll go back to the way we were before. Which according to Psalm 14 means ignoring God and ignoring his rule over our lives. Seems to me, therefore, that if we only ever treat the symptoms and not the underlying problem, 
we're going to be back in crisis mode again soon enough, just with a slightly different manifestation of the problem. Because the fundamental flaw is still the same, our rebellion against God. No wonder then that Psalm 14 says that we are fools if we don't learn the most important lesson of all from COVID-19. That lesson is that we cannot help ourselves, that we desperately need God's help, but thankfully that in Christ, God has come near and he has done something about it. Second brief implication, throughout Psalm 14, David insists that God's restoration of his people will come at the end of time, not now. You see, Psalm 14 ends with a confidence of God's future salvation, but there's no expectation of deliverance right here, right now. True, God is present in the company of his people, but did you feel how Psalm 7, uh, verse 7 concluded? Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his people. That is, Psalm 14 never promises that God's people will be saved from evildoers in the here and now, only at the end of time. And I'm reminded at this point of Jesus' many parables about the sheep and the goats or the wheat and the chaff, the sifting only takes place when Christ returns. That means that for you and I who are believers, we belong in this world even though we are not of it. And our commission, our privilege, is to warn it of the coming wrath while there is still time. Now, if that feels daunting, here's the comfort. Here's the good news. Here is the gospel. God is with us too. And so then finally, how would seeing God here today change the way that you live? How would seeing God here today change the way that you live? Uh, this takes me back, of course, to my opening question. It's also, you'll see on the bottom of your hand, a discussion question or a reflection question for you, and it's my takeaway for today. How would seeing God here today change the way that you live? Not just in the context of suffering and persecution, like that depicted in Psalm 14, but in every season, in every stage of life, no matter what your circumstances, both good and bad. Because knowing that God is here changed everything for David in Psalm 14, so how would it change us? Well, to make my point, I promised you some show and tell. So here we are. Now, last week, I talked a little bit about multifocals and uh, divergent lenses, you know, in Psalm 13, of, of being able to see back and forward at the same time. Well, my illustration this time is that I try to think, how can I help us to remember that God is present with us even though we can't see him? What will help us to remember that God is present with us even though we can't see him? What we think need, I think, is some kind of optical device that would help us to see into a different spectrum. 
Now, the best illustration I could come up with was a pair of night vision goggles. And so this week I spent some time on eBay trying to buy them, um, but I discovered they're very expensive. So instead, I settled for a cheap ripoff from a $2 shop, which also means I, I, I reckon they're probably not very effective. You get the point, right? In the darkness, you can see what would otherwise be invisible. And what I'm trying to say today is that Psalm 14 are those night vision goggles. Psalm 14 tells us that God is present in the company of his people. So, one last time, how would seeing God here today change the way that you live? What would you stop doing? Well, actually, I reckon all of us know the answer to this. We'd repent of our sin. We'd start with the little ones, the, the respectable ones that desensitise us to the serious ones over time. We'd put them behind us. But put more positively, what would you start doing? Well, I reckon we'd take heart. I reckon that we'd probably revise our life goals, or at least our long-term goals. And I reckon that we'd choose to stop worrying about the endless mundane trivialities that seem to consume our lives. If we believed that our God is present with us. Here's the good news for today. Jesus is here. He is with us by his spirit. And one day, soon enough, he'll be here in person. So brothers and sisters, hold on for just a little longer. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way in which it points us towards the Lord Jesus and the hope that we have in his name. We ask that in this week ahead, you might enable us to know that he is with us that he is shaping us by his spirit to be more and more in his image. And we ask that in so doing, you might give us confidence to keep fixing our eyes firmly on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen.